the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Glenn Beck. The Blaze Radio Network. Jonah Goldberg is one of my favorite people. Uh, I love following him on Twitter because he's funny uh, and irreverent. Uh, He is also... um, really truly uh, has an amazing history um with his with his mom and dad and uh, how he grew up and how he sees the world uh he's written one of the uh best books on progressives uh, out there called liberal fascism it was a book that really changed my life and he has written another book i know the title doesn't sound real happy um but it it actually is a very positive book unless you think about Okay, we're not going to fix any of these things. Uh, and then you realize, okay, maybe it's not quite so happy. It's Suicide of the West. How the rebirth of populism, nationalism, and identity politics is destroying the American democracy. It is fantastic to have Jonah Goldberg on with us now. Hello, Jonah. Hey, Glenn. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. Um, let me start with the question that I know you always want to be asked first, and that is... Why'd you write the book? <laughs> um, uh, because I'm a masochist. Uh, like a lot of people, I don't really love writing books. It's you know maybe it's because I have too many deadlines. Uh, maybe because I agonize yeah. over this stuff too much. Um, but you know I spent the last three and a half years like Howard Hughes with Kleenex boxes on my feet working on this thing, and um, you know you're right. It's a much more optimistic book. Well, it's a much more. Um, uh, positive book than the title suggests and one of the reasons why it 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 contains the answer but i'm not sure anyone is enough people are going to uh uh actually do the answer yeah i mean it's it's, i feel like i should have maybe called it a letter to a suicidal civilization (laughs) because that's good one of the reasons why i called it suicide of the west not death of the west or decline of the west is that i i think we have the power to fix it I think we yes. have it all within ourselves to turn things around. Decline is a choice, as Charles Crownhammer likes to say. Suicide is a choice. Yes. And what are the things that you would tell someone who is suicidal to sort of, you know, stop despairing? And one of the things you would do is you would tell them wh- how they have so much to live for, what what they should be grateful for. And if there's a takeaway from the book, I mean, I, the book starts 300,000 years ago, but... Um, If there's a takeaway for today, it's that we basically have a gratitude crisis in this country. No one wants. Everyone looks around and looks for reasons to resent what we what we've got and feel entitled for more. And entitlement and resentment are the opposite of gratitude. There's a couple of books out now. Uh, Steven Pinker writes a lot of stuff where you're like, uh, okay, well that's kind of optimistic. These stats are really optimistic. Uh, You know, there's another one. It's not as bad as you think it is. Where we are, where it is so clear that we are just so self-absorbed and and have become such, uh, I don't know, self-hating egomaniacs that we we don't see how good it is. It's never been this good, ever. No, that's right. And um, the part of the problem, and you know, one of the reasons why this book kind of cuts across. Uh, diagonally across the left-right thing, um, is that I, one of the one of the points I make is part of the problem is capitalism. 
look, I love, you know, what is two thumbs and loves capitalism? This guy, and I'm pointing both thumbs at me. <laughs> but right. I know there's, it, the joke works better in front of a live audience. Uh, <laughs> You're right, but, right. Uh, I have the T-shirt that says, who does Jesus love? This guy. So I, I got the joke. <laughs> and it, and it has an arrow pointing to your producer? No, it just um, has two just... thumbs pointing to me. <laughs> um, but look, capitalism is by far the greatest and, and arguably the only um, cooperative, peaceful system for in, improving man's condition, for, for allowing the circumstances for human flourishing that has ever been stumbled upon. It only has one shortcoming. It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel cooperative. It doesn't feel communal because it's too good at it. It's like that old ivory soap thing, 99 and 44, 100% pure. It is so unbelievably transparent in its efficiency that we don't feel like we're cooperating. But, you know, one of the greatest essays in the, you know, if you don't want to buy this book, that breaks my heart. But one of the greatest... One of the greatest essays in the history of sort of conservatism and libertarianism is an essay called I Pencil by a guy named Leonard Reed. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and he points out the, the essay is written from the perspective of the pencil. And it's like, I am a number two pencil, right? And the pencil goes on to point out that his paint comes from Delaware, the tin comes from Argentina, the rubber comes from Indonesia, the wood comes from Canada. All of these people all around the world cooperating seamlessly. Um, worshiping different gods, speaking different languages, to produce a pencil that no one really knows how to make. They only, you know, the pencil manufacturers only put together the last two percent of the process. They don't know how to like grow timber or mine tin or any of that kind of stuff. Capitalism produces these things so perfectly that the people who are producing them don't feel like they're cooperating. And so capitalism doesn't provide you a sense of meaning, doesn't provide you a sense of spiritual belonging. It provides you the oxygen to pursue those things. And so one of the problems that we've got is that civil society is eroding, the family is eroding, and people are hardwired to want to have a sense of meaning and belonging in the universe, to have a sense of, like, I know who I am, and I know what my contribution is, and I know what my purpose is. Capitalism can't provide that. It can only provide the opportunity to pursue it, the individual pursuit of happiness. And so when civil society breaks down and family breaks down, what happens is people start searching for meaning in bad places. And so they resort to things like identity politics that says that can reduce millions of people simply to the color of their skin. That's all you need to know about them, whether they're black or they're white. Um, or it, it causes people to leap into statism where they think, you know, as, you know, I've probably said it on this radio show a dozen times, but, you know, the first words of the Democratic Convention in 2012, which I attended for reasons probably having to do with original sin, um, uh, <laughs> the very first words were, government is the one thing we can all belong to. Yes. Now that creeps me out. But for millions of people who don't have a sense of belonging elsewhere in their lives, that feels like a promise. It feels like an invitation to be part of something. And that's a big source of a lot of the things that are tearing apart our country is that when family breaks down and civil society and community breaks down, people don't lose their desire for meaning. They, they start searching for it in places that are unproductive, and they resort to their human nature, which is inherently tribal. So let's uh, let's take a break, and then I want you to come back and, and talk a little bit about, uh, I, I want to jump ahead to um, populism. Uh, and it's sure. it's really kind of talking about what you're talking about now, but... 
people don't understand the difference between nationalism uh, and patriotism. Uh, they they think that this this nationalism that we're going through, this populism, is is a good thing. And uh, you and I hold a different belief. And you you talk about the coming of Mussolini and Hitler and and how some of these autocratic uh, uh, dictatorships seem to work. Not those, but they can seem to work. Recall that FDR proclaimed that necessitous men are not free men. Conservatives in the classical liberal tradition argued with that approach is a violation of liberalism properly understood and destined to constrict freedom in the end. Um, he goes on to say, but look at how in the last couple of decades, the rhetoric of the Western elites has grown increasingly hostile to democracy, free speech and to capitalism. And New York Times colonist, best-selling author Thomas Friedman spent much of the last two decades gushing over China's enlightened authoritarian capitalism. Uh, Jonah, tell me, tell me what's happening here. Yeah, so I mean, I know you're a fan of of, of liberal fascism, the the book, yeah. not the phenomenon. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, there is this. It is as sort of I was getting into in the previous segment. There is this inherent Achilles' heel, this weakness to capitalism, that because it doesn't provide a sense of meaning, it means it is particularly susceptible to appeals to other systems, other ways of doing things that are. Um, that seem more natural, right? Because we want, you know, we are wired to want to, like, operate all of us in it together, all of us fighting for the same thing, where we are um, subservient to a, you know, a big man who takes care of us, sort of like a father figure. That is the natural political organization of all uh, throughout evolutionary history. And right. um, and we have a sweet tooth for it. It's sort of like why we like sweets so much, because in our natural environment, fruit was incredibly rare and unbelievably value, valuable as a source of calories. And today, because we have sweets in such abundance, you get, you know, this terrible obesity problem. We have capitalism... It, is very, it does not satisfy that sweet tooth for that sort of tribal desire. And so if you don't have a, so, a society that is set up where people find meaning and belonging close to home and faith, family, friends, community, associations, and all the rest, they are susceptible to these appeals from government. You know, FDR is the guy who coined the term forgotten man that Donald Trump likes to use a lot. Um, part of my argument is that, you know, it's not, I tell some people sometimes that this book is a prequel to liberal fascism in the sense that all of these ideologies that we see emerge over the last 300 years that claim to be an improvement or a better alternative to capitalism, they're all literally reactionary. Because what they're all trying to do is provide that kind of tribalism, that kind of tribal attachment that we all inside crave. And so Nazism was tribalism for one race. Socialism is tribalism for one class. Fascism is tribalism for one country. And you can just go down the list. It is this idea that we're all in it together that we find so appealing. And the problem is you can't do that at a national level. You can't do that with a, na a continental nation with 310 million people. It, by definition, you are going to end up 
being tyrannical to some people who don't share your conception about how we should organize our lives. And yet this thing keeps coming up in our politics decade after decade, generation after generation, going back to the end of the 19th century, where liberal and progressive leaders would say, you know, capitalism is outdated, it's too chaotic, it doesn't work, we all have to work together, we need a moral equivalent of war, we're all working together, or we need this new deal, we're all in it together, or we need a great society where we're all in it together, or as Barack Obama put it in his uh, uh, State of the Union address, uh, once he said, you know, we all need to be like SEAL Team 6, who, you know, dropped all of their petty associations and petty partisan desires and ambitions to work together to fight for a common goal. Well, well uh, you know, Jonah, that how, how turns co- on its head the idea of a military in a free society. The free society right. is supposed to be out there protecting our liberty, not providing a model of best practices that we're all supposed to emulate. We're not Sparta. <laughs> I, I, I only have 30 seconds. Why is the 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 bill of rights not a noble enough cause to band together because we don't teach people that it should be that that is the core thing about this book it's it's an argument for gratitude you know calvin coolidge had it right if individual rights are belong to everybody if the people should be ruled by the people if if our rights come from God, not from government, that is final. You can't improve on that. As a system of government, we're on the top of the mountain. And whether you want to go left towards socialism or right towards nationalism, you're still heading down. This is an exceptional book that everybody should have in their library. Um, Suicide of the West, really, really well done by Jonah Goldberg. I mean, just listen to the chapters. Human nature, our inner tribalism. Corrupting the miracle when human nature strikes back. The state, the myth, a myth agreed upon. The birth of capitalism, a glorious accident. The eternal battle, reason versus the search for meaning. Um, the American miracle, they put it in writing. The elite, aristocrats, uh, aristocrats unchained. The progressive era, um, the administrative state, the shadow government, tribalism today, pop culture politics, the families losing the war against barbarism, the Trumpian era, the perils of populism, things fall apart, the American experience at risk, and decline is a choice. It's, I mean, it is a really well thought out book. Jonah Goldberg, its author, is uh, with us now. Jonah, I, I, I've got so much I could talk to you about with this book. Um, I'm I gonna try to, to get the ranting down to a minimum from now on. So, uh, no, no, it's. I mean, <laughs> you're just fascinating, and there's so many good things. Um, but let me, let me, let me just ask you a couple of questions. Um, sure. You start by saying there's no God in this book, right? Yet uh, Christianity or Judeo-Christian philosophy is clearly one of the human institutions that. Uh, allowed this miracle to occur and be written down. So right. why did so, you try to leave God out of the book? Well, I, I left God out of the book. I'm not an atheist. That's not the argument I'm trying to make. I, what I'm trying right. to do, which is something that is lost, on, I think, in a lot of our politics this, these days, is I'm trying to persuade people who disagree with me. And right. to do that, one of the things I want to do is approach the left on their own, or progressives or moderns, whatever you want to call them, on their own terms. And if I say, this is, you know, X is great because God says so, um, that only works to, you know, appeals to authority only work on people where we all agree on who the authority is. You know, if two brothers can say we can't do that because Dad says so, 
you can do that. But if I say we can't do that because dad says so to some to a stranger, then, well, I don't care who your father is. And so I, I'm trying to make the point that the miracle of liberal democratic capitalism that we have um, is a is a wonderful and 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 incredible thing that that progressives should be grateful for on their own terms. Yeah. In the last 300 so, years, people got richer, better off, less, they die, they live longer, there's less rape, there's less slavery. Every single thing that they claim to care about has been improved by liberal democratic capitalism, and yet they hate it. But if you take God out of it, I mean, uh, Stephen Pinker just wrote on the Enlightenment. I don't know if you've read his book. Um, but he, he writes, you know, 300 pages on the Enlightenment, and not once mentions the French Revolution. Uh, and, and that is because there was no God in there. And I, I understand and, and, and I applaud the way you wrote this book and your intent there. But how do we get to a point where we can say to people, look, you don't have to believe in God, but it's these kinds of institutions that have helped man uh, understand the power of the individual uh, and to be able to uh, to navigate without a big state. Look, I agree with you entirely, and God kind of sneaks back in towards the end of the book, because, yeah. um, first of all, I, you know, look, I think the Pinker book is very impressive, but one of the things I think he gets wrong is he treats the Enlightenment like it was all one thing. And yes. sort of like as Mike Myers' dad and So I Married an Axe Murderer says, um, when it comes to Enlightenments, if it's not Scottish, it's crap. And, you know, <laughs> the French... The French Enlightenment has lots of problems to it, in part for the reasons yes. that you say it, it left God out of it. And one of the most one of the most challenging, if not debilitating, turns in Western civilization has been the loss of the common acceptance of the idea of God fearing. Because character is that thing you do. I mean, it's a sort of a Hallmark card thing, but character is that thing you do. Are the things you do and how you behave when nobody is watching. And when we lived in a society that was God-fearing, you always felt like God was watching, and that kept, you, that kept you from giving in to the worst parts of human nature. We now live in this romantic moment where we're told the highest source of authority, the highest source of authenticity are our inner selves, our gut instincts. We appeal to our feelings, not to facts, and we turn inward, and when... You do that, that's how you get all these riots of asininity on college campuses, where kids say, right. I don't want to debate, I want you to honor my feelings. Right, and right. When your feelings are the ultimate arbiter of morality, you can get away with almost anything. Well, it's, it's why I think Nietzsche is so misunderstood when he said God is dead. That wasn't a proud proclamation, that was a, a, a warning what are we replacing God with? And we're not replacing God with anything other than feelings. Um, let, uh, your book is a really one of the best defenses of capitalism uh, that I have seen, especially in a time when there is no defense for capitalism, at least on the college campuses. Um, most 50 percent of college students uh, in the U.S. would rather live in a socialist or communist country the colleges are not teaching natural rights. They're not ta teaching individual sovereignty. So, so how do we how do we reach those people? It's it's a challenge, and, and part of the book is part of the point of the book is trying to reach out to those people. I and mean, I think one of the things that I keep trying to impress on people is that you know most of our political problems are downstream of our cultural problems, of our social problems. And one of the things I think is fascinating about particularly 
kids on elite college campuses, right? Uh, I have a lot of respect for kids who go to community colleges because they typically are paying their own way and they take it more seriously and they don't have a lot of time for the stupid stuff. Um, but at these elite schools, which I talk to all the time, this is the first mass generation of kids that have basically had their entire lives micromanaged, where um, they've almost, you know, again, this is a sweeping generalization, but you have these kids who, who've never really had to sort of adjudicate interpersonal conflict themselves. Some coach mm-hmm. or teacher or parent gets in the way. And when you have kids like that who don't, you know, who've never been bullied, you know, you have zero tolerance for saying anything mean to anybody. You have these kids who are very smart and very driven, very ambitious, but also um, ill-equipped to deal with anything that's, that's shocking or troubling or new. And that's why, you know, they need trigger warnings. That's why some of them actually need written contracts before they go on a date because they don't know how to, like, you know, deal with a member of the opposite so sex. So And so one of the problems that we've got is we've got this mass generation of elite kids who think they're entitled to run the country. And, and in some respects, it's understandable because they're going to end up running the country the way we organize our society. But they, and they live the most custom-made lifestyle We've ever seen any, you know, these kids get everything they want on demand. They schedule their lives on demand. They live iPhone lives, but they vote for a post office party. Yeah. And they, they, they and, you know, and one of the things that drives me nuts is on college campuses, there is this weird notion that being liberal is rebellious. And I always like to ask these kids, I'm like, well, wait a minute, let me understand this. So your teacher's. Are, are liberal. Your, you know, your, your teachers in high school are liberal. Professors are liberal. Administration is liberal. The publishing industry is liberal. The media is liberal. Hollywood is liberal. Music industry is liberal. Fashion industry is liberal. And you think you're sticking it to the man by agreeing with them? You know, and they all look at me the way my old basset hound would look at me when I tried to feed it a grape. You know, with just total <laughs> incomprehension. You know, and but this is the thing: we are we 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 teach an adversary culture. We teach. A sort of conformity that says you're supposed to dislike this country, you're supposed to dislike its heritage, yeah. you're supposed to dislike its, yeah. its principles. They're all hypocritical, founding fathers, hypocrites, yada, yada, yada. There's a better way to do it, and there isn't a better way to do it. We can improve the way we're doing it now, but there is no better system to go to. Um, let me uh, let me see if we, if we have time here to, to talk a little bit about your observations on what's driving the behavior of the left and the press to do everything they can just to destroy Donald Trump. Yeah, uh, look, I mean, as you know, I've been a critic of Donald Trump. My standard line on this, though, is I, I think the resistance people are making idiots of themselves. And whenever I talk to him, I try to tell him, look, he's not, you know, Donald Trump is not Hitler. Hitler could have repealed Obamacare. Um, you know, he is... <laughs> You know, and it, it, it's funny because it's true. I mean, look, he's, he's, right. he, he, he's a flawed character. Um, I'm not going to back off of that. I know that bothers people. I, it seems to me that that's undeniable if you actually hold constant your views of what good character are to prior to 2015. Um, but he's getting a lot of good things done. You know, there's a debate internally in Washington about how much of the good things that he's getting done are because of him and how many of them are despite of him. And we can have that argument. But there is this, you know, it takes two to tango. And a lot of the problems on the right, a lot of the reasons why Trump was elected, 
um, and why I'm sympathetic to a lot of his voters and a lot of the arguments for, you know, electing him, is that there was this profound backlash against the way the left was operating, against the way Hillary Clinton was operating. And yeah. there's this, this sense that we needed a guy to fight for us because the old establishment wasn't getting done. And there's a lot of merit to that. And meanwhile, the left and the media, they're responding to Trump like, like antibodies attacking a virus. And mm-hmm. they don't make distinctions about anything. And so this puts people like me and my, some of my colleagues at National Review and some other places in this weird place of, 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 of not giving in to either the wild pro-Trump stuff, which says that anything he does is great, or to the wild anti-Trump stuff that literally says, you know, look, he puts salt on his French fries. Hitler put salt on his French fries. You know, <laughs> um, there's a middle ground place. And I think you understand yeah. that, too, is that you don't have to yeah. demonize everybody who likes Donald Trump or think he's better than Hillary Clinton. Because, look, better than Hillary Clinton is an important thing. I don't think it says a lot, as some people do. I think it's like saying the, the best gas station sushi in Alabama, you know. It's something, <laughs> but it's a low bar as far as I'm concerned. Jonah Goldberg, it's always great to uh, talk to you. Thanks for your hard work on yet another great, great book, um, uh, The uh, Suicide of the West, uh, and we'll talk again. Thanks, Jonah. Hey, man, always great to be here. Thank you, man. Glenn Beck, The Blaze Radio Network.